Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. And welcome to another live edition of the Breakfast Show um, from the Voice of Islam studios in London. Um, a very warm welcome to you, dearest co presenter. How are you this morning? Assalamu alaikum. I'm good, and you? Yeah, good. Alhamdulillah. Enjoying the, um, the drive down. It's been a, a very um, enjoyable one this morning. Um, so. What's our topics for today's program? Well, in our first segment at 7.30, we shall be discussing the ancient bacteria which could persist beneath Mars's surface. Um, and by no means are we experts on this topic, so we shall be helped uh, with the one Dr. Robert Massey, who is the deputy executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society um, and he will certainly shed light on the topic. In our second segment we will start around 8.15 will be about the many plans for green infrastructure risk leaving vulnerable people out and again will be assisted alongside various expert callers and individuals. But before all of these interesting and thought-provoking topics, I look towards the morning papers and see what's been happening and indeed the weather for today and the week to come. Absolutely, Brother Shazib. So the headlines say that cloudy with some light rain during morning and some sunny spells later. A cloud morning with one or two spots of light rain. Dry throughout the afternoon with cloudy breaking, with cloud breaking up to give some sunny spells by the late afternoon. Clear skies in the evening, a maximum temperature 9 degrees. And tonight, uh, clear skies will see temperatures drop overnight, giving some patchy frosts before recovering around dawn as cloud thickens up from the north. Minimum temperature is uh, zero degrees. Uh, on Friday, a cloudy day with light rain moving south across region around midday, clearing by mid-afternoon. Some brighter spells will follow into the evening. Cold again overnight with patchy frosts possible. A maximum temperature, nine degrees. So we still can see that it is quite cold and we are in the late February and still uh, at nights we're going to be facing zero degrees. <laughs> so if you look at some news, um, an off-duty police officer shot at sports center. Um, the off-duty police officer is in critical but stable condition after being shot at a sports complex. There are unconfirmed reports that he was hit multiple times. The Police Federation for Northern Ireland said two gunmen were involved and he was shot while he coached young people playing football. Rishi Sunak said he was appalled by the disgraceful shooting. There's no place in our society for those who seek to harm public servants, protecting communities, said the Prime Minister. The Police Service of Northern Ireland Chief Constable Simon Byron said he was shocked and saddened by the events. We will relentlessly pursue those responsible, he tweeted. 
so that was a bad news of some shooting but uh, hopefully um, the police officer the off-duty police officer was um, it's is in a good condition and recovers soon another um, news is that a selfie image shows u.s pilot uh, flying over a chinese spy balloon the u.s department of defense has released an image taken by fighter pilot as he flew over the chinese balloon shot down earlier this month the selfie was taken from the cockpit of a U-2 spy plane as the military leaders tracked the high-altitude balloons' progress over the continental U.S. Beijing has maintained that the balloon was a, a weather ship balloon, of course. But uh, Washington says the balloon was part of a sprawling Chinese intelligence collection program. As the balloon flew over U.S. territory, at least two planes gathered information on its futures. A senior State Department of official said earlier this month that flybys revealed it was capable of conducting signals, intelligent collection operations. Officials first became aware of the balloon when it crossed into Alaskan airspace on 28th of January this year. Also, uh, another news is that Tesco and Aldi limit sales of tomatoes, peppers and cucumbers. Mm, Tesco is it, it is the latest supermarket to introduce limits on sales of certain fruit and vegetable due to shortage of fresh produce. It, fo- it follows similar moves by Aldi, Asta and Morrisons with other supermarkets also said to be facing problems after extreme weather hit harvests abroad. Tesco is putting limits of three three per customer on sales of tomatoes, peppers and cucumbers. However, Sainsbury's, Little Waitress and MS have not announced any limits. Pictures of empty shelves at various supermarkets have been circulating on social media in recent days. Uh, the shortage are largely uh, the results of extreme weather in Spain and North Africa, which has affected harvest, according to the UK government. A significant proportion of the fruit and vegetables consumed by the UK at this time of the year comes from those regions. And also the British retail, re- retail, which represents supermarkets, says the shortages are expected to last a few weeks until the UK growing season gets underway and shops find alternative sources of produce. Uh, Tesco, Britain's largest uh, grocer, said it was introducing limits as a precautionary measure to ensure customers could get the produce they needed. It said the limits applied both to loose fruit and vegetable and to produce uh, sold in packets. So, I mean, that's probably the reason I couldn't get... um, some tomatoes for the past few days. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also another news is that the uh, number of people never married rises, census shows. That's an interesting news. It says that uh, the number of people who have never been married or in a civil partnership has continued to rise, official statistics show. Data from the 2021 census from for England and Wales show nearly four in ten adults have never been married or been in a civil partnership, 
up from three in ten at the start of the century. That that is shocking. Four mm, is in worrying, ten yeah. adults. Yeah, um, God knows why, but I think that's the trend nowadays. Perhaps. Or I mean, at least in it's the, um, it's so beautiful to get married. You yeah, know? I don't yeah, know. No, there's um, a great level of commitment there, um, which I don't know why people perhaps are turning away from. Absolutely. So it says in 2021, 37.9% of adults, which is 18.4 million, have never been married mm. or in a civil partnership. This was up from 34.6% of adults, uh, which is 15.7 million in 2011. Mm. So we have uh, 3 million more adults who've never been married. Mm, very interesting. Um, in other news... Asylum claims for 12,000 to be considered without face-to-face interviews. BBC report that some 12,000 asylum seekers to the UK are to be considered for refugee status without face-to-face interviews. A 10-page Home Office questionnaire will decide the cases of people from Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Syria and Yemen who applied before last July. The move aims to reduce the asylum backlog which Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has has pledged to end this year. The Home Office says this is not an asylum amnesty, but it will streamline the system for five nationalities. Applicants from these countries already have 95% of their asylum claims accepted, says the Home Office. The usual security and criminal checks will still be conducted, biometrics taken, but for the first time there will be no face-to-face interviews, says officials. Instead, eligible asylum seekers must fill out a form and answer up to 40 questions. The questionnaire must be completed in English and return within 20 working days or the Home Office may consider the asylum application has been withdrawn. However, officials say there will be a follow-up notification if no reply is received and every application will be considered on its own merits. So in terms of the asylum backlog, having previously stressed the importance of in-person interviews, the Home Office is likely to face criticism that the fast-tracking has more to do with the Prime Minister's promise to cut the asylum backlog than having rigorous checks for identifying individuals with no right to be in the UK. But I think I would... I mean, the BBC is supposed to be impartial, but I think think what the Prime Minister is doing here is... It's bang on. Um, it's he's trying to s- commit to his statements. Um, I'm not sure if our listeners um, tuned into that interview with Piers Morgan and Rishi Sunak um, a couple of weeks back, perhaps, whereby he was very much so adamant, Prime Minister, that is, um, when quizzed on, you know, his um, his sort of um, commitments. Um, of um, leadership, um, and to which you know he responded saying his in his next interview he would you know come back um, after completing those um, those commitments that he has made to the to the British public, um, and this being one to, to get rid of the asylum backlog, and I think it's I think you know people were sceptical of Rishi Sunak, but dare I say I think he is trying to cut through that red tape and um, um, trying to make a difference. In December, Mr Sunek pledged to halve the number of people who had been waiting longer than six months 
for an initial decision on the application. More than that's more than ninety-two thousand people. Um, but Downing Street's determination to sort out the asylum backlog appears to mean making it simpler for thousands of migrants. The policy may be uncomfortable for Home Secretary Suella Braverman, who portrays herself as tough on those who claim asylum having arrived by an irregular route. A record 45,756 people successfully reached the UK in small boats last year. Um, so yeah, it's. I think it's positive that we are going through um, that backlog, but naturally, you know, they're will also be those checks, those screening procedures, um, as they have always been. Right, um, moving on and forward. I'm sure, uh, Brother Ajmi, you t- you may have touched upon the the Florida TV journalist um, and the girl that's killed near a homicide scene. Um, it's uh, very sad. I think this happened only a couple of hours ago, perhaps um, last night, um, whereby a TV reporter and a nine-year-old girl have been fatally shot near Orlando, Florida, close to the scene of a murder that took place hours earlier. A second reporter and the girl's mother were shot and injured by the same gunman, who was also suspected of the other homicide, um, the police have reported. Two Spectrum News 13 journalists were covering the killing of a woman in the area. That morning, when the teenage suspect returned, police say. It's unclear if they were targeted. The suspect was armed when he was arrested and was not cooperating with police. None of the three people killed in Wednesday's two attacks in Pine Hills, a suburb west of Orlando, have yet been identified. In a news conference, Orange County Sheriff John Mina said journalists were in or near the vehicle, which he said did not look like a TV station's official vehicle when they were attacked at around um, 1600 local time. He said that the journalists had been reporting on a shooting that took place early in the day at around 11 o'clock, which saw a woman in her 20s fatally shot inside a car when the suspect returned to the crime scene and opened fire. After attacking the journalist, the alleged gunman, Keith Moses, 19, went into a nearby home and shot the girl and her mother, the sheriff said. The mother was in hospital, in a critical condition, he added. And the other journalists nearby helped provide first aid to the victims, according to local reports. So it's very sad that, you know, thankfully the police have apprehended um, the suspect, um, a 19-year-old. You know, it's... Unimaginable. Um, three murdered, um, including a woman in her 20s and a nine-year-old girl. It's, I think I was just reading a stat the other day, um, and just off the top of my head, the, the mass shootings in America are already in double digits. Um, I think, um, I'm not too sure exactly how many, but it's a substantial amount, um, and it's... <laughs> It's worrying, really, um, because we're only in the second month of um, this year. But that's, I guess, stock reality when you have um, the the well. It's very accessible to buy and purchase um, guns over there, really. Absolutely, it's, it's very sad. Right, um, we'll be taking a short break now, and after the break, we'll be continuing with some of the other reports um, and. 
the other headlines, and then um, oh, and of course the football and Champions League, and then we'll con- start off our first segment at around seven thirty. So stay tuned. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Alaihissalam. God Almighty has bound up belief in His own existence with belief in His messengers. The reason for this is that man is invested with the capacity of believing in the unity of God a stone is invested with the capacity of flaring up and a messenger is like the flint which elicits the spark from the stone by striking it. It is, therefore, not possible that without the flint, that is to say without a divine messenger, the spark of the unity of God may be ignited in a human heart. It is only a divine messenger who brings down Tawheed, belief in the unity of God, upon the earth and it is achieved only through Him. God is hidden and displays His countenance only through a messenger. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to The Breakfast Show here at The Voice of Islam. Um, so we'll continue with the news and very unfortunate um, that the conflict in Israel and Palestine still continues in its um, full strength which is very sad to see and reports upon. Um, Al Jazeera here reports that Israel has bombed the Gaza Strip after Palestinian fighters launched several rockets from the besieged coastal enclave and amid tensions over an Israeli raid that killed at least 11 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank city of Nablus. The attacks early on Thursday sent plums of black smoke rising over one of the targeted locations north of Gaza City. Hours earlier, rockets fired from the Gaza Strip lit up the night sky and triggered sirens in the Israeli cities um, of Sedrot and Ashkelon. There were no immediate reports of casualties. Palestinian witnesses said they saw at least eight rockets fired, while the Israeli military put the number of projectiles at six. The Israeli military said its air defense system intercepted five of the rockets while the sixth fell in an uninhabited area. No Palestinian group has yet claimed responsibility for Thursday's rocket fire. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, you know the this conflict, it just never seems to dwindle or at least come to an end. And you know our, our sincerest prayers are, you know that it does um, because of the incredible loss of life and the overall. Um, struggle really um brother harshby yes i mean it it is sad and we do hope that it ends um we do have some sports news Mm. as always um so for the past two days we've been having champions league games um on tuesday we had frankfurt napoli and it's uh, surprisingly napoli actually won two nil and we got to keep in mind that napoli have actually sold a few of the best players over the transfer window and actually are on the verge of winning the Serie A title as well. I think they're around 15, 20 points ahead of uh, the second team, which is Inter Milan. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So Juventus probably, uh, what, fourth or thereabouts? Uh, they're actually quite, quite below because oh, wow. of uh, the 15 points... Um, um, deduction they got because of uh, some transfers. Um, mm, yeah, so they're, they're actually quite below. 
and also we had uh, Liverpool and Real Madrid. Mm. I think, uh, dear listeners, if you did not see this game, yeah, you've missed the best game already this year. I don't think we're gonna get yeah, a better match than this. incredible, yeah. So Liverpool were two nil up in fourteen minutes, and we were like, wow, mm. Liverpool is just gonna yeah. uh, finish from. Um What's his name? The first goal, uh, Nunes. Nunes, what Nunes. a finish! Yeah. yeah, what a finish! And Salah, of course, mm-hmm. uh, scored because of the goalkeeper's mistake. Mm-hmm. But Roma did have the mentality and experience of Champions League, mm-hmm. and they ended up scoring five goals. Uh, Vinicius Junior scored two goals. Emily Tyre sco- scored one, and Benzema scored two goals. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting match we had. And uh, yesterday. We had Inter Milan versus FC Porto. Um, Inter Milan won one nil uh, when Lukaku came off the bench and scored in the eighty-sixth minute. He's a Chelsea loan. Mm. And um, second match we had uh, Leipzig and Man City. That was a tough, tough game. And uh, Mara scored in the twenty-seventh minute, but uh, Gavardiol did uh, scored an amazing header jumping on top of the defenders and scoring a header. So that was 1-1. So this was news for football, but of course we should not um, leave out our women's football. So we had the Arnold's uh, Clark Cup, Cup, uh, and uh, England actually have uh, defended the Arnold Clark Cup after triumphing victory over Belgium, making three wins from three games in the tournament. So they have won this cup. And lastly, we had um, Qatar Open at tennis. Uh, Andy Murray beats Alexander Zverev to reach uh, quarterfinals. Um, Britain's Murray, he's 35 years old, dug deep into his physical and mental reserves yet again to win 7 6, 7 5. Uh, lost 2-6 and then won again 7-5 after absorbing mm. three-hour match in Doha. He said, I managed to stay strong, keep fighting and get a break at the end. Um, what for, an athlete. Uh, what an athlete at 35 years old, uh, playing Squashing for three heat. hours mm. and winning three sets. It's it's amazing. Uh, French qualifier Alexander Müller, ranked 170, awaits Murray next. So that was from the sports headlines. Righty, thank you so much. We'll take a break now, and um, after the quick break, we'll start off our first segment, ancient bacteria which could present, or rather persist, beneath Mars' surface. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, welcome back to the Breakfast Show. So, our first segment, as mentioned earlier, is about ancient bacteria which could uh, persist beneath Mars' surface. So, the gist of the story really is. Um, as to the radiation-tolerant microbes um, which might be able to live beneath Mars' surface for hundreds of millions of years and may yet persist today, 
thanks in part to counterintuitively to the red planet's frigid, um, arid conditions. So what are the conditions on Mars' surface that make it unfit for life? Well, it's cold and dry, constantly bombarded with cosmic rays, which are charged particles and other radiation from space. And interestingly enough, it has a thin atmosphere um, and it cannot block ultraviolet radiation. Um, and this also, I guess, it ties in with a verse of the Holy Quran in chapter 51, verse 48. Allah the Almighty states, And the heaven we built with our own power, and indeed we go on expanding it. And so, in essence, it should be remembered that the concept of continuous expansion of the universe is exclusive to the Holy Quran. And no other divine scriptures hint at it. And so the, the discovery that the universe is constantly expanding is of a prime significance to scientists because it helps create a better understanding of how the universe was initially created. Um, so um, what is the um, desiccation and how does it extend microbes' potential for surviving? Um, so... Desiccation is the state of extreme dryness, or the process of extreme drying. And previous studies have shown that the desiccation vastly extends a microbe's potential for surviving by limiting the production of highly reactive oxygen-bearing chemicals that can damage proteins and DNA, and among other vital molecules within its tissues. To see how long microbes might survive, such as onslaughts on Mars, researchers desiccated five species of bacteria and one type of yeast, store them at minus 80 Celsius, and then irradiated them. Some of the microbes might remain viable for only a few tens of thousands of years. Um, one species which has a very interesting name, which uh, I should try and now pronounce, is the Deinococcus radioduranus, in particular radiation. Um, and its um, nickname, Conan the Bacterium. Interesting fact, too. Um, Conan is also my mechanic's name, so that is much more easier to remember. Um and it might survive for as long as 280 million years if protected from radiation at soil depths of 10 meters or more. Um, and physical chemist Brian Hoffman and colleagues report online um, about this finding on the um, October the 25th. So it's very interesting. Um, it's all um, very overwhelming too, dare I say. But um, I'm pleased to say that we have been joined uh, by one Dr. Robert Massey. Thank you so much for joining us. May peace be upon you. And thank you. A pleasure. Um, Dr. Robert Massey is a Deputy Executive Director of the Royal Astronomical Society. Before joining the RAS, his career took him from PhD research in Manchester to teaching in Brighton and local politics in London alongside his stint at as a public astronomer at the Royal Observatory in um, Greenwich. Um, Dr. Robert, your career seems to be about the fascinating world outside our own. Um, can you also kindly tell us 
what is the main focus of the work of the RAS? Yeah, well, the RAS, the Royal Astronomical Society, is is more than 200 years old, 203 years old now. And uh, its job basically is to represent UK astronomers and also geophysicists because we also cover people who look at the Earth as a planet as well. And I've done that for about a century or so. And so what we're there to do is to raise the profile of sciences. We want to ensure that they're healthy and thrive. And we do that by doing things like, you know, running scientific meetings, by getting work published in scientific journals. Uh, we also do a lot of public engagement work as well. So those are the kind of things we do. We, you know, we're there to make sure that the sciences have a high profile and, and uh Actually, I think take advantage of the fact that for many people they are inspiring things to study and and talk about. Um, fantastic. And how much sort of effort and resources of the society are dedicated specifically to searching for and reaching out to extraterrestrial life? <laughs> Well, not not an enormous amount dedicated oh. to actually uh, reaching out to extraterrestrial life, but we do we do have a lot of we do one of our affiliate groups is the uh, Astrobiology Society of uh, Great Britain, and they their job specifically is to consider these questions. Now, I mean, the thing about astrobiology is that it's a really fascinating area, but of course, it's one where we haven't actually found any life on other worlds yet. You know, if we do that, that will be a sensational discovery, but obviously, you know, across the news and so on. So um, I think the, the question really is how, you know, to try and continue that work to establish and answer that question. And that means you know, doing things like building larger telescopes. It means like putting things in space to detect it. And along the way, you know, if you don't find that life elsewhere, you do find a lot more about the many, many uh, millions of other worlds there are out there. And we know that for sure. You know, we look at um, not just nearby stars, but almost any stars that we look at, we find planets around them now. I think that's not, no longer the exaggeration it used to be. So we know that there are lots of potential places where there could be life. We just haven't found it yet. Thank you, Dr. Robert. So my question is that, you know, um, that we know scientists uh, are considering the possibility of um, microbial life in the subterranean um, Martian surface. What is your own view on this possibility? It, well, it, it's possible. And I think I think it's one of those things that we'd dearly love to answer now. There have been quite a lot of missions sent to Mars to drive around and explore the near surface. So mainly they tend to be looking at rocks on the surface, going to areas where there's uh, been water flow in the ancient past. I mean, we're talking billions of years ago, not, not in recent times at all. Um, although there is evidence that you know water occasionally bubbles up, but it's basically basically it's all locked away because Mars is a cold world and it's blasted by radiation. So. The intriguing idea is that although the surface is really harsh, if you went there, you know, couldn't breathe the atmosphere, it's very thin, it's carbon dioxide, uh, it's not that warm. It's not, not ridiculously cold, but it's not that warm either. Um, it gets up perhaps to 20 degrees maximum if you're on the equator in the summer there. Um, but deep down under the surface, as on Earth, it might just be possible for bacteria to survive down there because they'd be protected from the radiation from the sun that I mentioned and, you know, it would be a more equitable environment and so that it's not, you know, it's not going to go through the same extremes of heat and cold. And that, you know, so maybe, just maybe, but to find out, I think we'd need to have uh, space missions, probably almost certainly robotic ones that could drill down and find that out. That's a complicated thing to organize, but it would certainly be worth doing. One of the things you also need to be aware of with this sort of work too is it, it's probably a good idea not, in my view, to be very careful about sending people 
because people bring we bring our own bugs with us and as soon as you bring them there then you don't know whether those things arrived at, originated on earth or on mars it, you know you've contaminated the surface by doing that um but so in, i was thinking so in the future we could build some tunnels underneath what do you think as you know bacteria is surviving well, i mean there is the, I, th i think it's the far future that we'll be talking about people living there in any serious way and the reason i think that is because despite the the, the comments you have from people like Elon Musk and so on we're a long way from being able to send large numbers of people there and it's 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 very dangerous and risky it takes mm. a long time mm -hmm. uh, if you're on a space mission between the earth and mars you're absolutely beyond hope of rescue help, uh, rescue so To do it is a, is a difficult undertaking, and, it, and it's enormously expensive as well. But even if you ignore, ignore the cost, the resources, the technical difficulty of constructing a spacecraft that can get large numbers of people there is not trivial. So perhaps eventually, sure, it might be that people live under the surface. I also think if I, you know, if we're looking, say, 150 years from now and, and people were living there, my guess is they'd probably be living in domes on the surface, protected from some of the things I describe, because my feeling is people won't want to live completely away from sunlight and day and night even if they can't breathe the air they'll still want some kind of connection mm. with the, the universe around them i think it's probably going to be a lot better psychologically to live on that basis so, so doctor why do you think so many people are adamant um you know you mentioned um, elon musk and you know they, they perhaps are um, various other people of the same ideology um Why are they so adamant on, um, you know, spending their resources and indeed efforts and endeavors towards trying to unearth if it's viable for any human to sort of exist on Mars or, you know, or at least trying to understand its um, surface? And yeah, I'm, I mean, there's no, you know, we we know pretty well it's it's entirely possible. And I stress possible rather than probable or likely for people to go and live on Mars if they want to. You know, there's no, there's no inherent technological barrier to that. It's just the difficulty and the resources involved in getting people there safely and allowing them to, if you like, live off the land. Because clearly you can't continue to rely on shipments from Earth, although I suspect that if there is any Martian colony in the future, that's exactly what they will have to do for a long time. Um, but... It's just the, the logistical challenges, the resource challenges to get that going that are, that are the real difficulty here. I mean, I suppose also I would argue about the ethics of it and say, well, look, actually, is this the, the, an important area to spend money on? Should we do it on mm. something else? But, but yeah. and at the same time, be super careful about contaminating it. As I mentioned, you know, if you send mm. people there, it's very difficult to keep it sterile. You can sterilize robots. You can take them there and you can say, okay, this is a robot that's driving around the surface, exploring it, and mm. it's not carrying its cargo load of bugs with it. I mean, I don't, you know, at the same time, could I see the excitement of that? Of course. I mean, it, you know, I'm too young to remember the moon landings, but mm. I imagine at least I would be astonished if the first people walking around on the surface of Mars don't get that kind of attention as well. Mm. Uh, it's just... Just some way off it, I think. I mean, you generally hear every year that there'll be some, you know, NASA plan, for example, to put people there within 20 years. But I, I don't know. I've been hearing that plan for at least 30 years, and it's not not that much closer yet. And that's, I think, because it's something that requires such a long time horizon that you can make that pledge with some safety and assurance that you might not have to really deliver it. I mean, if I'm being cynical about it, at the same time. You know, perhaps we'll see a slow change because there is the the proposal. Well, it's not just the proposal, but really serious work going on now around the the uh, lunar gateway, which should be 
built sometime in the next few years that would see people in a space station in orbit around the moon. So it might be that there's more interest than there has been in recent times in sending people, not just robots, but people beyond Earth orbit again. Thank you very much. Uh, so another question arises that is there a probability of life on any other planets of our solar system? Well, the, the, the answer to that is yes. Um, but, it, but again, it, it'll probably be simple life, but yes. I mean, so, so there are two, at least two other places, um, or three other places really. One is uh, Venus, which is a hostile and harsh world closer to the sun than the Earth is, although it's about the same size as the Earth. And about three years ago, there was a discovery in us. We, we helped to break this one of a chemical called phosphine in Venus's atmosphere, and that's associated with uh, bacteria on Earth and not much else. So the debate there is, is this phosphine being produced by bacteria in the atmosphere of Venus? Now, it's still quite controversial, and there are various other research groups that have tried to disprove it, and then the original researchers came back and so on. So that is one possibility. And then further out in the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, both of those have moons uh, for Jupiter, Europa, and for Saturn, um, Enceladus. They have moons with liquid oceans. And so, it, and the reason they have liquid oceans, well, in, in the case of the moon Europa, which is about the size of our moon, but in orbit around Jupiter, it's close enough that the gravity of Jupiter stretches it. Uh, you get tidal stretching. It heats up the core. And so the, it melts the ice that, it, that the moon is covered in. So it has a giant ocean. And it's, it's incredibly intriguing, the idea that there might be something swimming around in that ocean. Now, I mean, you may envisage fish and sharks and so on. But even if it's very simple life clustering around these these uh, smoky uh, vents at the bottom of the ocean there, that in itself is something we've got to explore, I think. And it might, may take a long time to go and find out, but it's worth a look. Doctor, how long do you reckon, um, or when initially was this whole idea brought to everybody's attention of you know, us potentially visiting Mars or you know, being there? Oh, I mean, well, I mean, it, that's really a question, I think, of looking back almost through science fiction as well. And there mm. are, I don't know about travel to Mars itself, because earlier, if you go back in, uh, say, 1,000, 2,000 years, people didn't necessarily think, or they're, they're not just, there was, there was no way they could have known, but also they didn't think necessarily of the planets as being other worlds. You know, there were certainly moving lights in the sky, but whether or not they would have imagined they were places that you could go to is another question altogether. Um, but it certainly uh, 1,800 years ago, there, there were kind of science fiction mm. beings books being written in ancient Greece. So it, people have speculated about the idea of life elsewhere in the universe for a very long time. Um, <clears throat> and obviously, you know, certainly in the last uh, couple of hundred years, that became much more intense, I think, because we had the invention of the telescope. We could look at these places, mm. realize they were other planets, and then think, well, if there are other planets, and in some cases planets, you could walk on the surface of those, but where you could walk on the surface, could think, could, you know, there be, well, I mean, I suppose people thought about people, but also could there just be life existing there, you know, creatures walking around on their surfaces. And, and do you reckon um, as momentum um, continues to pick up and there's more and more sort of positive outcomes um, or positive signs, should I say, that there'll be various corporations um, starting to um, establish themselves as logistical experts um, in providing, I don't know, whatever it may be to, to Mars? Well, if we went there in a big way, I'm sure that would be the case. Um, I think it'll take a step change in technology where it becomes a much easier journey. If you could get there in a couple of weeks, I suspect we'd be there now, 
um, the fact that it takes six months and then you've got to be there for a year and it's six months to come home is, mm. is one of the barriers to it. Um, but I'm, yes, of course, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, if it becomes a, if we get close to the point of sending people there, there are companies already that specialize in this kind of work and I'm so sure they'll be involved. That's very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robert Massey, for joining us this morning. And it's um, it's been very intriguing, to say the least. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Robert Massey, um, Deputy Executive Director of the Royal Astronomical Society, um, he joined us and helped us understand the topic in greater uh, length and detail. We'll take a short break now, and after the break, we'll continue with this um, and see what else we have to discuss. So stay tuned. عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ينزل ربنا تبارك وتعالى كل ليلة إلى السماء الدنيا حين يبقى ثلث الليل الآخر يقول من يدعوني فأستجيب له من يسألني فأعطيه من يستغفرني فأغفر له Hazrat Abu Hurairah narrates that the Holy Prophet stated, Our Lord, the Blessed, the Exalted, comes every night down on the nearest heaven to us when the last third of the night remains, saying, Is there anyone to invoke me so that I may respond to invocation? Is there anyone to ask me so that I may grant him his request? Is there anyone seeking my forgiveness? so that I may forgive him. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. Every light that is seen, be it high or low, whether it belongs to souls or pertains to bodies, or be it substantive or attributive, whether hidden or evident, be it subjective or objective, it is a mere bounty of His grace. This is a sign which indicates that the bounties of Allah encompass everything. He is the source of all grace and is the ultimate cause of every light, the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all, high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. No being other than he exists by itself or is eternal. All other beings are recipients of his grace, earth and heaven, man and beast, stones and trees, souls and bodies. All are sustained by his grace. عن المغيرة بن شعبة رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كان إذا فرغ من الصلاة وسلم قال لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الملك وله الحمد وهو على كل شيء قدير اللهم لا مانع لما أعطيت ولا معطي لما منعت ولا ينفع ذا الجد منك الجد حضرت مغيرة بن شبار رضي الله تعالى عنه نريدس When the Holy Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم finished the prayer and pronounce salutation, he would recite, There is no God but Allah. He is alone, who has no partner. To him belongs the sovereignty and to him praise is due, and he is potent over everything. O Allah, 
no one can withhold what thou givest, or give what thou withhold, and the riches cannot avail a wealthy person with thee. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. So before the break, we were talking to one Dr. Um, Robert Massey, um, an expert in the topic that we are discussing, which is around the um, the bacteria um, beneath the surface of Mars. Um, so I guess really um, we were talking about the specific bacteria which um, is nicknamed the Conan, um the bacterium, um, which they say has the ability to survive for as long as 280 million years if protected from radiation at soil depths of 10 meters. Um, and with regards to this specific bacteria, Brother Hashmi, um, what properties um, does this bacteria have that it is allowed um, to have similar microbes to persist on Mars' surface? Um, so uh, basically it, it resists radiation and damage by having uh, multiple copies of chromosomes and other genetic material in its cell, um, as well as uh, high levels of um, manganese-bearing anti oxidants that help remove DNA damaging chemicals. If similar microbes uh, evolved on Mars, they could um, too persist for lengthy intervals, uh, even possible until now, which is improbable but not impossible. Mm. Even if microbes that uh, evolved on Mars ultimately succumbed to the harsh conditions uh, remnants of the proteins and other uh, things may remain, offering hope that uh, you know even future missions, if equipped with proper equipment, uh, might be able to detect those signs of former life. That's very interesting, um, and we're way over sort of where we should be in terms <laughs> of you know our knowledge on the topic. Um, this being very specific and very detailed, um, and incredibly scientific. Um, but it's very interesting um, and it's very thought-provoking because of the the potential expansion that we can have um, of the human race. And the doctor previously discussing the ethics to this, you know, whole um, endeavour and experience. Absolutely. I mean, it it is a bit sad for me mm -hmm. that, as he said, you know, it might take a few hundred years to, <laughs> to go there. So... Yeah. Uh, we probably missed our opportunity, but... We probably did, but, you know, he also touched upon the fact that here on Earth we have so many issues um, with regards to poverty... Absolutely, and, yeah. ...and, mm. you know, various other um, issues. But, um, you know, us sort of reaching out to Mars and spending the resources that we are, or at least individuals um, are, um, is somewhat questionable. Um, but I guess it's... I guess it's advancement... Um, and um, there are various um, individuals who are trying to unearth Mars' secrets um, so that we can explore them. But we are approaching the 8 o'clock news. We'll take a break for that and we'll join you guys afterwards. Hazrat Mughira bin Anhu narrates, When the Holy Prophet finished the prayer and pronounced salutation, he would recite, There is no God but Allah. He is alone, who has no partner. 
to him belongs the sovereignty and to him praise is due, and he is potent over everything. O Allah, no one can withhold what thou givest, or give what thou withhold, and the riches cannot avail a wealthy person with thee. The Holy Quran tells us that وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا بَثَّ فِيهِمَا مِنْ وَهُوَ عَلَىٰ جَمْعِهِمْ إِذَا يَشَاءُ In this verse, so many things have been told of the future of man and the scientific developments and his reach that just this verse should be enough to convince the atheists that either you believe that Hazrat Muhammad Mustafa was himself a god or you believe that there was another god telling him these things. Because it was entirely beyond the capacity of man to reach out to such heights of future knowledge as this single verse tells us. First of all, look at the concept of the universe during the time of Anzur sallallahu alayhi wa and many many dark centuries beyond after his age. The concept was that the heavens are made of firmaments and one after the other there are firmaments which are a plastic, something made of some plastic nature and in those firmaments the stars are studied the sources of light, how they burn they don't know, but there are sources of light which are studied in those moments. Like jewels are studied on a, a dress piece. So this was the entire concept about the universe. No question of any life existing beyond this earth. So first of all the Holy Quran says, وَمِنْ آيَاتَهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا بَثَّ مِنْ that that concept of firmament is totally wrong because Allah has created life both here and in the heavens and the word used for life is not a word applicable to angels or spiritual life of any sort it is entirely limited and cannot be extended beyond this limited sense to, it is limited to the animal life as we call the biological life. Dabba is the word only used for biological life. A life which can move and the entire animal life can be described by one single word, word Dabba and it is by no means applicable to angels or spiritual life. So that is an important fact which has to be stressed. So Allah says the firmaments are not like you think because in such a case there could not be any life beyond this earth. But Allah tells you that there is life. Secondly, it tells Wallahu ala jamehim is ayashaw qadir that Allah is going to bring them together. Now this is something which man has not yet reached. Even the first part, now the second part uh, was contained in the first part, that the heavens are not like this and the life is beyond. There are two points mentioned. So the people have so far reached, the man I should say has so far reached the first stage alone. They know the nature of heavens, 
they know that it is possible in the heavens for life to exist elsewhere, but as yet they do not know if there is life. It's only a conjecture, a mathematical question. But the Holy Quran has solved both these questions. And the second, secondly, if the scientists do discover ultimately that there is life beyond this earth, they are not at all sure if it is possible for the life of that planet and the life of this planet earth to meet. Because even if that planet is, is one, one, uh, solar, one light year beyond us, it is impossible for that life to come to earth even if we live on for thousands of years. Because we can't uh, travel on the shoulder of light, which travels by at a speed of 186 miles plus uh, per second. But there are planets millions of years apart in light years terms. So the Holy Quran tells us that not only there is life, but it is possible for life beyond this earth to meet the life on this earth. So that was the, um, an audio clip by um, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, very eloquently articulating the sciences and indeed the, the concept of um, extraterrestrial life or the potential for at least extraterrestrial life. And in, in a separate question, um, um, the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah strength in his hand, he also stated um, when quizzed and questioned upon the possibility of extraterrestrial life, to which he stated, even the promised Messiah, whom be peace, has said there are quite a number of other galaxies and it is quite possible that there is life in any of the other galaxies and other planets as well. But we don't know for now the actual position of them. Some scholars say that from the verses of the Holy Quran we construe that a time will come when there will be a signal from other planets to our Earth and then there will be a mutual communication but how it would happen and when will it happen, Allah knows better. But there is life there. So, I guess this is um, sort of a, a subtopic to our current topic, but it's very much so, um, um, you know, thought provoking and intriguing. Um, Brother Hashmi, what do different religions say about life outside of Earth? Or is it just the religion of Islam? No, ab no, absolutely. Uh, so if you see some atheists claim the discovery of aliens would destroy organized religion or invalidate <coughs> the Bible, a survey of religious people found that m most are comfortable with the idea of intelligent aliens and do not see it threatening their beliefs. Uh, astronauts such as um, John Glenn actually found their trip to space to bring them closer to God and to a deeper faith, uh, the Bible is still relevant in the space age. It makes claim far beyond uh, the people and places of earth, uh, describing God as the creator of all life and the entire cosmos. And many parts of the Bible are provincial and intentionally so, 
scriptures focuses on the work of God in one small geographic region of our planet, centered and the descendants of uh, one family. Uh, the Bible does not attempt to be comprehensive about the entire earth or people living on other continents. Rather, God revealed himself in a way suitable for the first audience in the ancient Middle East, leaving out information that would not make sense to them. Some make a case from Christian theology that humans must be the only intelligent species on the universe. Humans have a unique, special relation with God that is not shared by other species on Earth. This can be extended to say that humans are unique in the universe as well. So humans have an exclusive relationship with God. Um, some others make a case from Christian theology that humans could be one of many intelligent species. Uh, scriptures show that God is generous, even uh, apparently extravagant in creating an earth that is fruitful in producing many life forms. So we have a mix um, of reviews of people saying and that uh, there might be life and there might not be some life. Yeah, I mean, from at least the, the Islamic point of view, we are very much of the opinion that there and there is a possibility of life. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think, I think as we progress, and as we do, you know, um, jump over the hurdles of our time, um, we'll certainly be able to at least advance towards Mars, dare I say, and um, you know, see what um, is awaiting us there in terms of the challenges and in terms of the. Um, well, the overall um, experience and endeavour. Um, but I guess time will be um, testament to our uh, endeavours. Right, with those words and um, with those comments, we'll end with this segment um, and we'll swiftly move on to our next segment, which is around the plans for green infrastructure, um, which is leaving vulnerable people out it's very different um very um i guess um current too so the gist of the story really is that many u.s cities are turning to green infrastructure such as the rooftop gardens um and various other um advancements but planning process often fails to include the people in communities targeted for upgrades um, which risks many inequalities. Um, and that's not just in the US, but dare I say that's over here too. Um, so what is green infrastructure? Well, a term, uh, well, rather this term, is used to describe the network of natural spaces and corridors in any given area, and it can deliver quality of life and environmental benefits of communities including open spaces such as parks and gardens, allotments, woodlands, fields, hedges, and the list goes on and on. Um, so, in essence, that is what the green infrastructure is. And the key features of green infrastructure are that it is a network of integrated spaces and features. Um, so it's not just individual elements. So it's um, more 
multifunctional and it provides multiple benefits simultaneously. So these can be to support people's mental and physical health, encourage active travel, cool urban areas during heat waves, attract investment, reduce water runoff during flush flooding, carbon storage, and provide sustainable drainage. And this kind of reminds me of the revamp of the Battersea Power Station. Um, huge investment by, I think it was a group in Thailand or Malaysia, um, either one. But um, for any of our listeners who are um, in the vicinity of Battersea, they would know, um, or at least if they've read the news, they would be aware of the the um, the green infrastructure, which is also uh, very much so present there. So it's, I guess, um, a trip that some of us should at least try and see and make. What are the reasons... Um, which the architectural projects are looking into the green infrastructure. Well, the protection and management of our environment is vital to our survival. That goes without saying. But the recent human activity has resulted in pollution of land, water, and indeed um, air. And so that's allowed us to have the loss of biodiversity and the degradation of our landscapes at a scale and at a rate never experienced before. And this significantly it limits the ability of our environment to produce these services. Um, it also um, is important to recognise that humans exist within a wider ecosystem um, and the conserver- conservation of which is vital. This also actually swiftly takes me on to the, the Islamic point or elements here. So Islam really emphasizes the importance of environmental protection and preservation. Muslims um, are, you know, encouraged to be mindful of the natural world and to treat it with the respect and the care and attention that it deserves. This also includes the, the, the development and implementation of green infrastructure, which, you know, um, as mentioned earlier, exists, um, you know, we as humans do exist within a wider ecosystem. So in Islamic teachings, the natural world is considered a gift from God, and it's seen as a, as a reflection of his majesty and power. Muslims are effectively responsible, then, for taking care of the environment and preserving it for future generations. But the sad scenario really is, or the, the reality really is, that if we do look towards some of the um, Muslim worlds or Islamic countries, not worlds, there's only one really, <laughs> uh, Islamic countries, you know, we'll find that there are so many issues um, for the leaders of said countries to focus on, you know, green infrastructure or environment. Very unfortunately, that's, you know, lower down the pecking order. So, although it shouldn't be the case, but it is the case because of our because of our religious incentive and obligation, um, it should be there. And to that extent, the Holy Quran states, and I quote, "It is He who has appointed you viceroys in the earth, and has raised some of you in rank above others, so that He may try you in what He has given you. Surely your Lord is swift in retribution." 
yet surely he is forgiving and merciful. Chapter 6, verse 165. Additionally, the founder of the beautiful religion of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, The earth is green and beautiful, and Allah has appointed you as his stewards over it. He sees how you acquit yourselves. Um, and it's such a um, significant statement and saying of the early prophet, peace be upon him, whereby it's emphasizing the importance of taking care of the environment and being responsible stewards of the natural world. So for any individual who you know, does follow the religion of Islam, you know, there are literally um, no other excuses that should be um, brought to such individual, to such an individual's mind um, when it comes to the responsibility that he or she should um, portray um, to when we do um, exist on this earth, making sure that we you know, do take care of our environment, you know, not to litter, you know, um, which is a huge thing, um, and to preserve um and really um advance our green infrastructure so in essence what we are saying is that islam definitely encourages the development um of green infrastructure um as a means of preserving the environment and also providing i guess an ecosystem service um and this is constant with the principles of sustainability and environmental stewardship that are central to our teachings. Brother Hashmi, what is regeneration um, and gentrification and how does it cause inequality? Um, so basically, uh, regeneration includes a reversion, economic, social and physical decline in areas where market forces will do not uh, do this without support from government. Um, and gentrification describes the recess by which middle-class, wealthy and higher-educated individuals move into poorer working-class communities and cause a raising of rent and prices of services and leisure. And we've seen that everywhere, really, in London. Absolutely, um, yeah. I was, uh, I think, a couple of weeks back on Ladbroke Grove, mm-hmm. um, you know, notorious for the gentrification on literally as you enter. Um, it's a pretty long stretch of road. You'll see these beautiful houses. Um, and you can, you know, very easily tell that, you know, there's money being spent here. And as you do make yourself down the Labrick Grove, you'll come by a set of traffic lights. Um, and it's like somebody switched a button. Um, you know, the lights have gone off, God forbid. But you can see the the the, the, the contrast um, in you know the middle class moving in and the whole element of gentrification um, being very much a prominence, um, and that's just one you know sort of street in London. There's various other areas too, think notorious for the you know past sort of decade of rents over there and of, and indeed of the various middle class moving in because of its close vicinity to various stations and. I guess it comes down to location, really. Um, but yeah, that's been incredible to witness. And you touch upon regeneration. 
um, there's been a huge uh, revamp of what was it up north um, the the, uh, the parts of the the parts of the country up north where predominantly uh, coal um, coal mining and indeed um, in the industrial sort of uh, factories were very much so present mm-hmm. when they sort of uh, vanished or were uh, vanishing that's left a, a big gap and a big hole huge amounts of unemployment and you could tell that this place uh, was left or ha- will be left derelict and has been left derelict and now what's happening is um, especially in um, I think Liverpool and parts of Manchester and even Birmingham there's huge investment from the private sector um, there's a lot of flats there's a lot of a lot of companies actually have moved up north definitely um, yeah you can see some change yeah yeah that's I think all got to do with this regeneration and there's a lot of um, green infrastructure also being invested um, which is bringing about um, hustle and bustle back to the area absolutely and I think we have our next caller online indeed we do a very warm welcome to Dr. Cecil Asalaamu Alaikum and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you thank you so much for joining us this morning Alaikum Salam good morning to all of you thank you so much uh, Dr. Cecil um Dr. Cecil has 30 years of experience studying teaching, um, devising on aspects of urban forestry and nature-based solutions. He's widely considered as one of the world's leading urban forestry experts. Cecil has lived and worked in Europe, Asia and North America. And since 2016, he has been a professor of urban forestry at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Cecil helped found the leading academic journal Urban Forestry and Urban Greening and edited seminal textbooks such as the Rootledge Handbook of Urban Forestry. Um, Dr. Tesla was passionate about using trees and nature to develop better cities and allow all and, and always stresses the importance of building meaningful relationships between people and places. A pleasure once again to have you, Doctor. Um, could you kindly start off by telling us about why green infrastructure is so important um, and the risk it has um, when we do leave this out on the vulnerable people of our society. Yes, definitely. Well, well, we know, of course, that our cities are under continuous pressure, for example, from, from climate change. So we've all experienced uh, the heat waves across the world in, in, uh, in dry summer spells. So, so trees and other green space really help us cool our cities. And a recent study that was published in The Lancet showed that uh, as much as one third of excess deaths due to heat could be avoided if we would green our cities and, and have a, we call it 30% canopy cover. And of course, also, I mean, green spaces help us uh, find nice places to recreate. They help us with, with keeping in contact with nature. They host biodiversity, wildlife. So there are many, many reasons why we should really green our cities. And, and if we don't do it, we really uh, yeah, put, put especially vulnerable populations at, race, at risk. Um, very interesting. You mentioned um, that these green spaces do have an, inf- an, an, an effect on, you know, reducing our heat waves that we do have. Um, another sort of point, or at least another question which I do have in mind is, in terms of, um, you know, parts of the world where there's various hurdles and um, challenges, how can such countries try to incorporate green infrastructure because of the you know, the number of advantages that they do have. 
Yeah, that, that's definitely a great question. It's, it's, uh, I've had the pleasure to work in, in different parts of the world, and, and often you have to work really with, with local conditions and possibilities, and, and of course planning systems or so may not always be in place to, to really do major greening efforts, but there are some really nice uh, ways of doing more kind of local bottom-up um, things, like for example creating what we call tiny forests in neighborhoods or encouraging people to do more community gardening, um, so there are different ways. And tree planting in general, I've seen some really good examples in, in uh, for example, Southeast Asia and Latin America, where people are really get, starting to get engaged around trees. But I think one of the key questions is really to see trees and, and, uh, and green areas as an essential infrastructure for, city, for cities rather than just something that is nice to have. Indeed. Um, and in terms of um, regeneration um, and indeed, you know, this whole element of green infrastructure, what are the costs and the benefits? Do they sort of outweigh the costs here? Because I do imagine it does um, cost quite a bit. Yeah, of course, it's not free to establish green infrastructure, although uh, if you would leave a city uh, alone, right, the vegetation mm. would rapidly take over. But but uh, there are some studies that say that if you invest, uh, let's say, one pound in, in planting a tree, you would get five or six pounds back at least in terms of... Uh, in terms of the benefits, so it is it is a good investment. It will cost money to to establish trees, to grow them properly, to manage them, but then it gives all these different benefits in terms of cooling, in terms of public health. So uh, it is definitely a good investment, and and there's very few uh, infrastructure investments that would generate so much um, uh, positive outcomes compared to the cost as as green infrastructure would. And over sort of the past sort of um, ten or so years, how rapid do you reckon everybody's attention has? being brought to green infrastructure I, I, I presume you know COVID was a huge wake-up call of overall outdoor living or at least you know having open space but do you think now because of you know these challenges that we've had in our recent past there's more of a, a sway towards having green infrastructure? That, that's a great uh, reflection definitely so I think the whole COVID pandemic of course has really made us realize how important it is not just to have green space nearby but actually even to see trees and green from, from our homes, from our from our offices, etc. So, and I think that together with, with the heat waves and the climate change impacts that we all feel across the world have really, uh, yeah, made it very clear there's an urgency to create more green infrastructure. And Dr. Cecil, how can we do our bit? Um, how do we as individuals um, improve or at least establish, um, you know, our little green area or infrastructure and really promote this message yeah those of us who have gardens or even balconies we should definitely try to do our best to, to green those and to to plant a tree where we can uh, there's a famous saying right that the best time to plant a tree was was uh, was yesterday basically we need to plant more trees and i think we can all take action and of course also engage with our local communities our local neighborhood groups our local politicians and make sure that they take green spaces seriously because this is really a matter of life and death this is not a luxury uh, issue um so dr cecil um, i have a question that uh, do you think we have left a bit too late do you think we should have started i mean we, we've only seen of of this green infrastructure for the you know past few years but i don't think there was really anything before those years, do you think we have, to, have left it quite a bit late? We have left it a bit late. I, I have to agree with you, but I'm also an optimist, and I've seen a lot of things happening in recent years, um, also in, in places in, uh, in, in the global south. So there's, there's a lot happening now, uh, but we have to be really quick. 
and we have to really green our cities uh, rapidly. Um, so we are late. That is a bit, as with climate change, we are really late in doing it. But I think it's not impossible. And I think we just need to re- kind of rethink uh, our cities and we have to rethink how we want to live as humans and we want to live closer to nature. I think there, there's still hope for us to, to make our cities much better than they are today. Dr. Cecil, are there any interesting new green infrastructure developments happening here within the United Kingdom, um, which our listeners perhaps would, wouldn't be aware of? I mean, I earlier mentioned the, the Batsea, uh, Batsea Power Station um, development, um, which I believe does have an element of um, green infrastructure. Um, but are there any other current projects ongoing? There, there are actually quite a few projects in, in the UK, so I'm always very eager to follow what's happening. Uh, mm. And that is that sometimes development uh, developers who start to be more aware of, of preserving trees. So there's an interesting development that took place, I think, in Elephant and Castle district that is really trying to keep the trees that are there and, and mm. use them as an integral part of the architecture. There's a lot of tiny forests being established across the UK. There's urban forestry programs. Um, there, there's really interesting history in terms of community forests around cities. So, so I think there's a lot of initiatives, um, and I know there's a lot of experts and, and community groups that are very active, standing up for their trees, uh, like they did in Sheffield a few years ago. And mm. when trees are under threat, people are really willing now to stand up for their local green infrastructure. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely on the rise, and I guess because of the predicament that we are all in in terms of you know, um, your fossil fuels and um, the climate change. Um, I think that this is on everybody's to-do list, especially with, you know, good old Greta Thunberg um, and her advancements in promoting um, climate change. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us this morning, Dr. Cecil. Um, thank you so much for taking time out, and hopefully we shall be speaking in the near future. Thank you so much for having me today, and have a, have a great day. Thank you. You too. A pleasure. Professor Dr. Cecil, um, uh, an absolute um, privilege to have you with us, widely considered as one of the world's leading urban forestry experts um, and, you know, achieved various um, accolades in this industry. Uh, We'll take a short break and after the break we'll continue with this topic. Stay tuned. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Quran is a rare pearl. Its outside is light, and its inside is light, and its above is light, and its below is light. And there is light in every word of it. It is a spiritual garden, whose clustered fruits are within easy reach, and through which streams flow. Every fruit of good fortune is found in it, and every torch is lit from it. Its light has penetrated to my heart, and I could not have acquired it by any other means. And Allah is my witness that if there had been no Qur'an, I would have found no delight in life. I find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand Josephs. I incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart. It has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured, and it has a wonderful effect on my heart. My self is lost in its beauty. It has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the Holy Qur'an, which is a surging ocean of the water of life. He who drinks from it comes to life. Indeed, 
he brings others to life. This climate change or climate change problem is the issue everywhere all across the world, right? And uh, especially in the third world countries where uh, the population is increasing in numbers, eh? in, in, uh, you can say without any proportion. So and, uh, just to accommodate this population, you are uh, increasing your uh, residential areas. And because of increasing the residential areas, you, you are uh, cutting the forest. So this deforestation is also causing climate change. So you, you have to be very particular, very concerned that whenever you cut any tree, you should plant two trees to replace the, that tree. And whenever you are in, the population is increasing, you should also increase in that area where there is already some uh, clear area. Not that you cut, cut the forests and uh, do deforestation. And apart from that, you see, this uh, fuel consumption should also be reduced. Now we have, we have become so lazy that if we want to go from one place to the other place and the distance is only 100 yards or 200 yards, instead of walking to the place, we shall take our motorbike or the car to go to that place, right? And in this way also you are polluting the atmosphere. Pollute, pollution is increasing in the environment. And there are so many other factors which are causing pollution and climate change. And so we have to be very careful, although we cannot say that because of the fear of uh, climate change we should uh, should not produce children or we should do family planning. No, but at the same time, we should plan in such a way that the forest should not be cut without any proportion. If you cut one tree, you plant two trees. Try to establish your or develop your areas or increase your, your to make your new to 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 start new developments residential developments in those areas which are near to the town and the the big villages so that the forests are not disturbed and at the same time use less uh, such type of vehicles which are uh, being uh, run by the fuels and uh, now making pollution in the atmosphere, right? So, and apart from that, that is a natural process. And uh, if God wishes that he has to reduce the population of this world, then there is a natural process that he will, the, the nature, law of nature will also work. So whatever we should do is that whatever is in our hand, we should try to do that one.
राइट तो यू शुड इफ यू आर यूजिंग मोटर बाइक डोंट यूज इट टू मच इफ यू आर यूजिंग कार डोंट यूज इट टू मच है इट वुड बी बेटर इफ यू वॉक इवन अप टू वन माइल डिस्टेंस डजेंट मैटर असलम एंड वेलकम बैक टू द ब्रेकफेस्ट शो है um i listeners had the opportunity to listen to his holiness on the significance of looking after the environment and indeed of the overall responsibilities that we do owe to it um brother hashmi we were discussing also about regeneration i believe um what is it and how do we see it improving our landscapes and indeed uh, their overall green picture Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, as a place is upgraded via regeneration, it is typical for products and services offered within the area to get more expensive, as we talked about it earlier. Whether this is the price of a house, bills, or a haircut, rising expenses can contribute to economic inequality. As things become more expensive to accommodate the demands of wealthier people moving into an area, it becomes more difficult for less wealthy people. Um, often, people who originally lived in the pre-gentrified area to afford to live there. So, in turn, this makes it harder for less wealthy people to access the same provisions and resources as wealthier people. and can reinforce uh, you know divides between people of different incomes and reduce social mobility so research by professor henry overman has shown that most of the benefits of regeneration projects uh, basically in manchester city center and the london docklands did not help those originally living in those places people in poor um, poorer working class areas are often people with ethnic minorities uh, gentrification is mostly caused by a white and a wealthier population moving in uh, this may also cause and of course tension between cultures and races so the question is what are the costs and benefits of regeneration of urban spaces Uh, benefits include uh, you know the positive multiplier effects um like local governments increase funding to improve infrastructure and services this basically leads to more companies you know seeing this newly built area as an area in, of investment uh, this of course attracts uh, more you know boosting the local common economy this also brings in further investments from bigger companies that see an opportunity so basically this leads to bringing social reform as well as uh, you know in the community and negative impacts uh, e- uh, economic inequality displacements of locals and also threat uh, to small businesses uh, introduction of community conflicts so these are some you know benefits of regeneration of urban spaces very interesting um very thought provoking because of i guess the whole the whole idea really is to improve the, the area the landscape of the area um and naturally i mean i do find myself 
grappling with some of the comments um, or the quotes which you mentioned. I guess regeneration only helps um, a certain group of people, um, and it's very difficult that everybody, you know, will be helped, and indeed everybody will be happy. But I think the overall picture of that certain area um, certainly improves. Um, you know, I've seen um, a before and after of areas which were left derelict, which required huge investments. We're talking in the uh, tens of hundreds of millions um, pounds. And you know, after the, the the initial investment, uh, there's been a huge um, exodus um you know of people moving into those areas um and inhabiting those areas um and that naturally you know uplifts the area um there's more local investment there's more businesses open and you know there's a that has that hustle and bustle which is reintroduced so i think i'm all for regeneration um and naturally you know th there will be people um aren't benefiting that will perhaps also disagree but in terms of gentrification um, I think that has a profound effect on like you mentioned Brother Hushby on you know, those individuals those families that just can't keep up um, with either the rents or the overall um, market increase um, within that local area or that postcode you know um There'd be uh, London being a prime example, the Docklands, like you mentioned, and indeed there are very th other pockets within London which have um, and are going through gentrification um, and will continue to do so because of the hotspot that London is and demands. Um, and these things, I think they are tied with, at the end of the day, as crude as it sounds, investment and money. Um, and you know, people f flock towards wherever there is investment or wherever there is opportunity. And sadly, those that can't keep up are, you know, left behind and, you know, forced to move out because of the costs. So, at least from an Islamic point of view, we certainly do um, look towards helping those that are um, suffering and do make it, you know, a point that such people aren't forced to leave an area which you know, they have in inhabited for so many years um, and their uh, um, traditions and indeed their respect is maintained in terms of um, the rural picture here. So it's been a very interesting and very thought-provoking topic, green infrastructure. Um, and earlier on, our listeners that are just joining us now would... Um, be fascinated to have um, had the opportunity to listen to Professor Dr. Cecil, who um, allowed us to understand the topic in greater length and talked about the significance that green infrastructure has in our modern day um, because of you know the various hurdles that we have been going through, um, COVID being a huge one, COVID-19, that allowed us to understand the the need of um, both gardens, open space, the outdoors in general. Um, there was huge migration, actually, of people leaving the city centres and going towards 
um, the country, or rather the countryside. Um, and that was due to the the fact that people just wanted, you know, the fresh air, the openness, um, having the ability to go for walks, you know, the parks being at your doorstep. And I think green infrastructure is so key, not just for our physical activities um, and abilities, but also for our mental health. Um, you know, just to take a step back and I guess just take that deep breath in um, and to really allow us the opportunity to you know um to look after ourselves uh, look after our our mental well-being which is so key in our fast-paced modern society that we live in so a very pertinent topic and a pleasure to have had the professor with us um this morning um we'll take a short break and after the break we'll continue with the islamic perspective of the introduction of uh, green infrastructure. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the Voice of Salaam uh, breakfast show. Um, we've been talking about the green infrastructure. Um, doing so, um, we have covered an array of um, subtopics um, and it's been very interesting and very thought provoking. But I do believe that we have now come to the end of today's live edition of the breakfast show. Um, a huge thanks to my co presenter. Um, thanks for our listeners for being with us from 7 o'clock all the way to 9 o'clock or at least approaching 9 and indeed to our uh, producer Halima Ahmed Salia Ahmed researchers Ganta Waki Halima and Salia and indeed the brother in the tech department is doing a fabulous job um, but from all of us here Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu